Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here tonight with my brother, Christian Lewis. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight, we're talking about the music of Virginia and D.C., where we're from. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now let's talk about home, Virginia and D.C. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight it is a Brother, Brother podcast. My name is Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with Christian Lewis, and we're talking about the music of D.C. and Virginia. Uh, Christian and I did not grow up together, but we did grow up uh, in relative uh, close proximity uh, at different times. So I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Richmond, Virginia, uh, between the ages of 1 and 10, and sort of really developed my interest in music uh, as a Virginian uh, Christian, on the other hand, grew up in Northern Virginia, which is essentially D.C. and a different state from Central and Southern Virginia, and uh, lived there really through his high school years uh, for the most part. So um, he's much more uh, knowledgeable about uh, about the music of, and the history of music in D.C. So what what's the what's D.C.'s lasting contribution to the music world, really? I mean, I think the the thing that most people would would cite first is probably the legacy of DC hardcore in the 1980s. I mean, it's a it's a pretty you know incredibly rich uh, rich group of bands who I mean I think really did shape sort of hardcore punk for for the next uh, next decade at least. And you know I think their their influence in terms of you know speed, ferocity, and perhaps lack of musical ability um, is uh, is still felt in the world of punk rock today, don't you think, Wyndham? Absolutely. But it, it's more, I mean, my my takeaway from D.C. punk was uh, having lived through that time period um, is, is the sort of, they seemed the most, for lack of a better term, they seemed to take it the most seriously. It seemed to be, they, they seemed to be the most dogmatic uh, followers of an ethos, of a particular ethos. So... Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, you know, I'm always one of the things that I think fascinates me most about sort of at any point in in time in the 20th century of music, like you have DC emerge as this sort of incredible leader of of an almost sort of militant ethos of, um, you know, self restraint in terms of, uh, you know, the straight edge movement, which was born out of this. Although, you know, I have a few thoughts that I'll share in terms of like the practicality and the fact that that was sort of birthed out of the fact that like, you know, people wanted to go to all ages shows. So, so they didn't drink to start with. And then it sort of caught on and became its own, um, became its own uh, sort of uh, guiding principle or set of principles. But, but the, the, the bigger point I was going to make is, you know, I think that it's sort of fascinating that you had L.A.'s hardcore scene and D.C.'s hardcore scene emerge more or less simultaneously at a time when, like, there really wasn't a ton of connectivity in music. I mean, we've talked about, uh, and certainly everybody here on both sides of, of uh, the country at that time were, these were, like, very much DIY-focused musicians. So these these are guys who are subscribing to fanzines and getting mailers from, from people all over the place. But, but even so, it's like, 
you know, they it was still certainly carrier they pigeon. weren't touring yeah. the country. Yeah, to start with, I mean, you know, they they didn't have national tours for for Minor Threat and and you know on the other side of the country for for Black Flag necessarily. Um, at least in the very early stages, around seventy nine, eighty, eighty one. Um, you know, so I think that it, it's worth taking a moment to consider sort of like what could possibly have been the social conditions or where were we at that point in music that allowed this to uh, to sort of to transpire, to evolve at that particular stage. I mean, you know, you you may have some thoughts about this, right? Like, so the, the sort of uh, the clash, I mean, I don't know, when, when does everybody say punk died? Um, I mean, in, in, in England, yeah. So it, yeah. it was a supernova. It started, you know, sort of the mid-70s, and, and, you know, it died before the end of the 70s. It was, you know, 77 is when all those, you know, all those sort of landmark albums came out. And, and then, Fit, the Ramone, yeah. Fit the Ramones onto that timeline, 77? 76. Uh, was the Ramones. Yeah, uh, the Ramones tour England. Uh, Malcolm McLaren gets obsessed with the Ramones, uh, forms his own uh, band out of a bunch of, punks, for lack of a better term, that hang around his clothing shop. Uh, he's got a vision uh, to piss off the world, and uh, the Sex Pistols uh, basically start putting out singles in 76, and never mind the books, comes out in 77. Okay, so, um, and yeah, I think Supernova is a great, way of, uh, a great way of describing it, because it did sort of explode onto the scene and then burn itself out pretty quickly um, with a couple of ODs, a couple of strategic ODs, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and then what, what's sort of fascinating, though, is that, like, clearly the, the speed, you know, the, the pace, I mean, the tempo is, is the first thing that you've got to say. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of thread of continuity that, that continued into these two hardcore scenes well, and sort of permeated them in, in D.C. and L.A., right? Which, yeah, well, I mean, what you said, you know, having grown up on D.C. hardcore is that when you uh, sort of back, uh, when you sort of backdoored it into listening to the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, you were like, what is this? Phil Spector girl group shit. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I was like, that's, I mean, the way I always describe Ramones is Beach Boys Punk, Mm -hmm. um, which is like, you know. Which is a great thing. uh, Yeah, it is, and I've grown to love it in its own right, but I think when I was looking for something that sort of, you know, like. Disturbed your parents, yeah. Yeah, to disturb my parents and steel myself against, you know, the emotional volatility of being 15 and 16 years old, um, and I'd already heard Minor Threat, I was sort of like, why is this so melodic? (laughs) <laughs> like, um, I thought that, I thought that punk was supposed to, you know, and, uh, but in any event, you know, I think you're, you're right to, to say that there was something, um, there was a sort of like ideological, uh, sort of hidebound quality that was specific to DC. And, you know, a lot of that, I think there was something to rally around in this sort of straight edge, uh, straight edge thing that, that emerged there. Um, and it's funny because if you, if you watch a lot of, um, if you are a junkie of specifically DC, uh, hardcore punk documentaries as I am, um, you will see a lot of the guys in there, you know, Ian McKay, um, and his brother, uh, Joe Lally, you know, Gee, like any of these guys describing the way that Straight Edge emerged, they'll say it, it emerged out of necessity. It was because we couldn't take beers into the Wilson Rec Center in Northern Virginia. It was because we couldn't, you know, um, we couldn't get gigs in places where, uh, we could drink, so we just sort of swore it off and we decided we would X our hands because the point was, you know, the music is more important than however you want to get fucked up. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that's, that's sort of... I, there's a 
part of, you know, part of me that thinks like, I, I sort of admire that. I, I like that, you know, I, I didn't necessarily practice it myself, um, but, uh, forever. Um, but you know, I, I do think there's, there's something to be said that's kind of cool about that. And I think the, as is, you know, often the case with these things, the reputation for it then became sort of the defining quality of, of DC hardcore. And, and, you know, that was something that, um, that I think sort of preceded any of these bands. And you did have, you know, really notable exceptions, right? So um, probably uh, it's worth, let's, let's get into talking about some of these bands since we're, we're just sort of yeah, waxing poetic on the scene. But I mean, I think, you know, this thing kicks off with Teen Idols first and foremost, which is Ian McKay's first band. And then that sort of evolves into, um, into Minor Threat. And then you have this sort of heyday in 80, 81, 82, um, when, you know, there are, uh, a huge number of, of um, you know, competitors and, and sort of uh, um, uh, their buddies who, who form these bands. So you've got, um, you've got uh, Marginal Man, um, for one, you've, you know, Iron Cross sort of brought the oil punk Cross. thing yeah. to, to D.C. and sort of they were a little controversial in, in the sense that, um, you know, they were... Uh, Although they certainly never advocated um, racism, some of their fans did, and that became a pretty big, uh, pretty big black eye for them and their legacy. I think. Um, but you've also got the Faith and the Void. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. The Faith and Void split seven inch that came out in '82 is one of my all time favorite releases uh, from from that era. Partly because I think the Faith is sort of much more skewed toward um, the the minor threat style uh, of punk, where you've got these guys in Void who were first of all from Columbia, Maryland, not Northern Virginia or DC. Um, very heavy drinkers, uh, which kind of blew up the scene and confused a lot of uh, confused a lot of the kids who were already in it. Um, so you know they really did provide a sort of alternative, uh, uh, an alternative to you know I think some of the some of the straight edge leadership. Um, but then you've got other outliers who are now considered sort of core members of the group, like Bad Brains, who come from a completely different part of town. I mean, these were, you know, these were, um, like, I think, urban... Uh, I mean, these were black kids from inside D.C. as opposed to, like, the suburban kids who went to private schools in Northern Virginia, uh, for the most part, or Washington Lee High School in Arlington. Um, you know, but I think the the fact that they all ended up playing together was partly also a function of, of just availability of space, as is so often the case, you know, with, with young bands. And, like, there are many, many great descriptions of how these guys would play together basically in, uh, uh, in go-go clubs in D.C. because those are the only places that would give them, give them space for, for their shows. You might want to tell um, me what go-go clubs are because it's, that's a real regional thing, too. Oh, yeah, that is kind of a weird, uh, weird side note, I guess. So, so go-go clubs are, uh, I mean, I guess go-go music in general is like a very D.C.-specific brand of, um, like... Funk uh, or soul. Funk and soul. Yeah, I guess soul that sort of emerged in the 60s. Um, and, uh, and I pretty much fizzled out, is it safe to say, by like the 80s? There were, I, I, I'm not. I was. I'm not as aware. You know, I'm not as well versed in the history of go-go music. I just know that it's this thing that um, it feels like only people from Maryland and Virginia and DC know what it is. It's a. Uh, it's a strange. Yeah. It's a strange. Um, it seemed like a. Like a. Well, you know, bastard or not a bastardization, but a um, a hybrid kind of music. 
Um, yeah, so it's like I mean I, I guess the 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 guy who everybody would cite as the the uh, the Godfather of Go Go as he's called is this guy named Chuck Brown, um, and you know he uh, I'm trying to think of like some of the other band I mean like Black Heat the Young Senators were a couple like e- EU um, was one weren't they Yeah, Experience Unlimited um, exactly, and you know I think it was like the the term if I and I, I'm not. An historian, but again, this is this comes up a lot in the uh, in the DC punk rock documentaries. Um, basically, it was the the go-go was like the term used for um, like black music clubs in mm-hmm. DC, um, and then a sort of like a very specific brand of um, and like very much like drum and bass driven um, funk sort of like emerged out of this and sort of you know put its stamp on on DC which at the time was the chocolate city. Um so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty cool sound, but like I also think that oh and uh, the what was this Bustin' Loose is like the quintessential go-go song that everybody knows. Um throw, throw it on this playlist. <laughs> yeah, it's got to happen. Um but uh but you know, you, every once in a while like these guys would tour with like Parliament Funkadelic and Earth, Wind, and Fire, and like Ohio Players and stuff. So there were some commonalities there, um, but like but it, it the, speaks it speaks to the regionalization of music. Uh, you know, they had the, they've it's this you know it's the African American community has the same regionalization um, naturally that took place in uh, punk rock, which is uh, and then you know college uh, indie rock. Uh, you know, basically you have scenes in different parts of the country and those scenes have a very specific style attached to them. Um, and so that's where you get, you know, that's what you, you're sort of marveling at the idea that uh, Los Angeles and Washington and D.C. punk had come up at the same time. But I'm sure Go-Go and the Ohio players from Dayton and, you know, X-Band, the Commodores even from, yeah, uh, you know, you're talking, you're sort of talking the same vintage that all kind of met in the, um, at some point in the disco floor. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think it, it's interesting to see. I mean, there are definitely definitely traces of of go go music in um, in some of the later permutations and uh, of of you know the DC hardcore scene. So when when that first wave of of um, you know of the the sort of the true uh, hardcore like bands phased out and transitioned into bands like Rites of Spring, and then subsequently you know even into Fugazi. Um, Dag Nasty, like one of the things that I've always noticed that you won't hear uh, that you won't hear on a Black Flag record is the occasional sort of like dub bassline, um, which you know you definitely get definitely get uh, on you know Jaws calling like Bad Brains uh, songs and that kind of stuff, um, but you also hear it like in the basslines in Fugazi, right? I mean it, it's definitely there. Oh, yeah. and if you think about it, there's, there's like a, a swing sort of, to those, yeah. Yeah, which is cool, a very cool sound. Um, and I think really sort of helps add some of the, uh, I mean, some of the melody that maybe Ian Mackay's vocals, forgive me, um, did, did not. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, I, I think, like, it's, uh, it, it's definitely there, and it's really cool when you think about sort of how it all traces back to the fact that these people were just slammed in the same club together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I will say that, that from the little footage that I've seen of go-go clubs, uh, the dancing is significantly... Better. More awesome than <laughs> slam dancing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I, I was just gonna, you know, give my, you know, my take from a distance was that, you know, this was a very regimented and, and disciplined group. Um, my eighteen-year-old eyes looking down on it, saying, um, you know, I 
would prefer not to give up all of these things that, that mark <laughs> a, a decent person in the DC punk rock. And I think everyone because from LA. Because it's, it's fun to do bad things. <laughs> yeah, and everybody in LA is looking back going, you know, if people in DC look like people in LA, you wouldn't give up sex either. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, but the other the other thing that I, I just I, we've got to toss out there is that like DC is DC, right? It's also the epicenter of national politics, um, and everybody's parents work in government. So as I'm a kid going to hardcore shows in DC, it's worth noting that everybody on my mom's side of the family worked for the government um, in different capacities, basically. Uh, Similarly, Ian Mackay and Alec Mackay's parents did. Um, one of my favorite uh, versions of this is the fact that Marginal Man, which was another one of the uh, sort of early wave hardcore bands, they were their first show ever was at the old 930 Club opening up for The Faith and Minor Threat, so that gives them some cred. Um, but their, uh, their lead singer and guitarist was Kenny Inouye, who was, uh, who was <laughs> Senator Inouye's son, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's like... You know, you, you, there's definitely a political consciousness about these about these kids who are 15 and 16, and and you know I think there's probably one of the things I always hear cited is like like your parents grow up as part of the hippie generation, like yeah they smoked pot and they believed in like the summer of love and all that stuff. Um, well, now they all quit smoking pot and went to work for Ronald Reagan, um, and like you know I can see how as a 15 or 16 year old that seems pretty fucking lame. Yeah. And so if drugs are what take you down that road, you know, steer clear. Yeah, I hear you. Well, why don't we take a break and we'll come back and we'll uh, talk a little bit about Virginia. Cool. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight is a Brother, Brother podcast. It's Christian and I talking about D.C. and Virginia. And I have to say, um, you know, Christian, having grown up in, in suburban D.C., uh, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my life in the other part of Virginia. It's really kind of a two-state kind of a state, uh, much the same as California is northern and southern California. They're very distinct entities. They're sort of suburban D.C., and then there's Virginia. And Virginia is southern, it's uh, it's you know the first state in the South, and you know there's little pockets of it, but you know sort of uh, where I grew up in Charlottesville, uh, you know serves as a, a little bit of you know what Austin serves to uh, to Texas, which is you know a, a small sort of more forward you know more progressive thinking 
um, island in the middle of a, you know, kind of a, a reddish. Lefty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It's a, it's a <laughs> it's college, college town. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, and, and you know, there, there was never much of, you know, growing up, there was a lot of, um, a lot of people were interested in the arts, but I don't think there was a lot of arts emanating from uh, that part of Virginia. On the flip side, Richmond, another town that I'd lived in, um, was a pretty significant contributor um, to the sort of soul R&B uh, 70s, um, you know, uh, you know that, that scene. But also, and then it really grew up and blew up in the 90s and, and early 2000s as a, as a kind of the epicenter almost for hip-hop and R&B. Um, you know, you had a keener eye on that than I did because I was, again, I was sort of uh, not paying as much attention to the pop charts when I was that age, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was, like, the, the Virginia Beach, um, Newport News, like, uh, you know, produced, it felt like for a time, and it, sort of 2001 to, or 2002 to, like, 2005, all great, I mean, like, all great pop music seemed to go through one of the two producers out of Virginia Beach, either Timbaland or Pharrell Williams, um, as part of Neptune's NERD, um, or uh, or solo, and then of course you also had Missy Elliott um, and uh, and the group Clips, who um, I I felt never really got the attention you know that they fully deserved. Um, was I thought that a lack 2000... of output or a lack of attention? No, it was a lack of. I mean, I think it was a lack of attention. I thought their two thousand two album Lord Willen is a titanic classic of that era of rap um i thought i think it's outstanding and completely stands up um and you know it, it's funny because like uh Pusha t is has you know since come to i mean he's really sort of been um been sort of lionized now in, in the last few years and really really hit major success um but it was so odd to me that that he didn't while he was while he was still a part of clips um i mean i thought they had just killer uh, uh killer production of beats and like of course you know and he was just as just as good an mc then as, as he is now um so you know that that was always kind of a kind of a mystery for me but you know we really can't overlook i think in particular nerd um and missy elliott i mean mm-hmm. their their contributions were were absolutely huge and you know she's still killing it right like she put out a new single last week um so, uh, so well, I would she's... say, I mean, you know, as far as do- world domination, I mean, Pharrell's had, I mean, you know, I, I, I my fingers not Everything as much on guy... the pulse, but it, Every... he's had twenty years of this at this point. Yeah, he just looks seventeen still. I don't know what his Fuck diet guy. is, but I th- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like as as we're talking about this, um, no, but I mean, he really is like. Uh, there was just a time when literally everything he touched turned to gold. Um, and he was involved, I mean, you know, as a songwriter, um, as an R&B producer, a rap producer, uh, you know, I mean, it started with obviously his buddy, Chad Hugo, um, when they formed the Neptunes and, and sort of they were scoring like songwriting and, um, and doing production locally. Uh, but then, you know, he sort of, he really started to infiltrate or, or, you know, I, I think... Um, mainstream pop and the sort of the MTV pop that I was listening to when he started producing shit for Britney Spears. Timberlake. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and by the way, some of their best Gwen songs. Gwen Stefani. Yep, 
Absolutely. I mean, it always um, has a, it, it seems to me, I mean, and I'm not that from you know, I, I know, you know, I like, I know and like Pharrell stuff, but it seemed to me that the, the, the sort of secret to the Pharrell Williams sound was marching band. I mean, the guy, I mean, I know he was in the marching band, but I mean, everything he does has a sort you know, he owes his career to John Philip Sousa. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, everything has this sort of martial, you know, percussion. Percussion, or I, or the other, the other great DC band, the U.S. Marine Corps marching band. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but uh, no, totally. I mean, actually, it's funny you say that because I was just uh, one of one of the best like takes that I that I read recently was um, from a one of my a critic that I, I really like, uh, but Tom Bryhan, who writes for for Stereo Gum and a, a bunch of other places. Um, and I was reading his review. We were talking about Kill the Moonlight and, and Spoon, and he was saying, you know, he, he sort of presented this great question, which was um, he would really love to know if Britt Daniels was listening to uh, was listening to Timbaland Pharrell. and Pharrell back in 2002 because, you know, there's there's a very similar sort of... I mean, syncopation is sort of the, the cornerstone of, of, like, the construction of all of those songs, and there's an incredible use of negative space. I mean, like, he uses silence in a way that like i mean it is its own instrument and and that's Build really tension. incredible yeah. yeah i mean that's a that's an awesome thing and you're right that that is there's a drumline marching band quality to that that's that's very cool hmm. it's funny I'm, I'm looking at you know a couple of the other artists that are from virginia and, and to me uh chris brown and d'angelo have uh you know the thing that i think of them uh, think of them uh, you know, sort of having in common is that and I love, and I'm a huge D'Angelo fan. I'm not as familiar with Chris Brown, but Chris Brown, I was, you know, when he came out, was billed as the next Michael Jackson. D'Angelo, 10, 15 years earlier, had been billed as the next Stevie Wonder. Um, you know, it's it's kind of funny that they're both from Richmond and they both, uh, you know, both have been successful. Obviously, Chris Brown's got his issues, uh, um, but uh, D'Angelo, um, you know, I certainly, if you were billing someone as the next Stevie Wonder you wouldn't consider that they would put out three albums in the next 25 years. Uh, yeah. So, it, you know, it, um, given the given the sort of uh, 70s output. Of, but I, I think D'Angelo is an absolute mega talent, and I wish he was uh, had been more, um, you know, I would, I had circumstances not not um, cooperating, but it would have been nice to, to hear what the full output of D'Angelo was if he hadn't run into some... Um, trouble in, along the way did some issues along the way yeah I mean they they both do so we can we can maybe attribute their issues to being from Richmond as well but um no I mean I think <laughs> yeah exactly um since we're in the, <laughs> since that's basically what this what what this episode is about um is uh coming up with with um bizarre commonalities that we attribute to to geography but um you know I do think yeah D'Angelo is just like, a really phenomenal musical talent and i think you know his his latest album obviously which you know was was sort of marked a, a huge uh a huge comeback with black messiah back in what was it? it came out like at the end of 2014 he released it earlier than he was planning to i think because of um because of the uh the social climate in, in the united yeah. states but like um you know th- that was I- i'm with you i mean it it, it was not something that I initially took to, um, but you actually were the one who, who told me to sort of stick with it. And, like, just the incredible density of, um, mm. uh, of you know, layers and layers of instruments um, was, was pretty fascinating. I mean, it was a really sort of incredible thing to, to pick apart. Um, but it, it did take a while to, to really sort of feel like I, I could hear all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, you want to take a quick break and come back? Sure, and then we can uh, we can chat. I don't know a little bit about like country and bluegrass and that kind of stuff in the region. And the rest, yeah, that'd be great. We'll cover the rest of uh, Virginia music when we get back. brother podcast tonight we are talking virginia music and it is a brother brother podcast so it's just christian and i because we're really the although jeremy was born in richmond virginia uh he never really lived there uh, more than uh, a short period so really christian and i spent a lot of time in in virginia and dc and and i wanted to as part of you know our sort of continuing uh series of geographical uh podcasts based on places that i lived as a child or we lived as a children um, anyway, the, speaking of uh, f- families that stick together, um, the the uh, the thing about this, you know, when I grew up growing up in, in Charleston and Richmond, um, they were much more southern uh, back then than they even are now. I mean, there's been a lot more sort of northern migration down there. But one of the things that you know I sort of kick myself for as a young appreciator of music uh, and my zeal for disco as a as a seven, eight, nine, ten year old. Um, was that, you know, country was sitting right there waiting for me to be, you know, waiting uh, to be discovered by me. And I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Um, and, you know, it, it, I now go back, at, you know, as I said, as a, a student of music and, and somebody who loves uh, this music and, and really have, you know, gained an appreciation, uh, probably started in my 20s, um, for country music and particularly this um, you know, the sort of history, historically, um, you know, sort of the older Appalachian country music. I mean, the Carter family and uh, the Stanley brothers uh, were both from uh, a very small uh, region in coal mining country in, in Virginia, uh, Carter family being from Mesa Springs. They were probably the most uh, influential, uh, band, you know, group in the history of, of country music, American country music. I mean, they were... Um, you know, they were superstars before there was uh, the technology and capacity to accommodate that notion. They were touring, um, it, it, you know, as a family, as a, as a family group, and there wasn't really, you know, they sort of set a precedent for, for that kind of popularity throughout the South. Stanley Brothers um, were contemporaries of, of A.P. Carter and, you know, Ralph Stanley, 
uh, you know, started a, a family band of his own. Um, but they were, you know, th- this was really um, remarkable stuff. And, and when June uh, ultimately married Johnny Cash, um, you know, that sort of brought the whole uh, thing to a, you know, uh, that was sort of, a, in those circles, that was sort of the royal, royal wedding. Um, did you ever, I mean, did you know much about country growing up, Christian? So for me, it was, I mean, you know, I, I obviously, I guess I, I picked up, my mom was a big fan of Emmylou Harris, and I, you know, I think she spent a, a fair amount of time as a child in, in Virginia, um, and certainly mm-hmm. described it as home when I, when I saw her in concert a couple times. Um, but, uh, but I think, um, you know, I, country for me was, was more, it skewed a little bit more toward bluegrass on the one side and then blues on the other. And, you know, I think one, one piece of this sort of musical lineage that I did climb onto at, at one point was, uh, was the sort of Piedmont blues of the region, which is, um, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's, it's kind of odd. It's very specific to sort of Virginia, D.C., and Maryland, traditionally at least, and sort of more out toward the mountains, I guess. But, um, but it's, uh, it's sort of the combination of like the sort of ragtime um, parlor guitar and instrumentation techniques, so like, you know, alternating thumb picking kind of stuff that you would get with, uh, with sort of bands, but then applied to um, blues song structures um and this is like it's it's not that well known but um there is uh there is something called the archie edwards blues society in dc and and this was actually like a a guy named mike baytop gave me guitar lessons for for a few years when i was a kid and he was the sort of protege you know down to building his own guitars. I mean, this guy was like, he was a true, true obsessive, um, but of this guy, Archie Edwards. And actually they, like he and a bunch of his buddies always used to get together at this barber shop in, in Northeast DC, um, every Sunday. And they would hold these sort of open, like jam sessions. Yeah. I mean, literally, and anybody could show up with any instrument and like guys would come with like rib bones that they had made. Um, (laughs) like it was, it was fucking crazy. And like here I would show up with like my guitar and, um, and try to keep up and not make a fool of myself. But like, it was, it was so cool. And it was so cool to see like a, a, what I felt was like a a sort of like a a living tradition, um, you know, of, of this version of me. Yeah. It was like a really incredible experience. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I recommend everybody check it out, but, um, the other side of that was like, uh, you know, was, was bluegrass. And I guess that really isn't, a part of the Virginia that I lived in in Northern Virginia. Um, I think it's, you know, you head down toward like Cumberland Gap and sort of closer to Tennessee. Uh, um, Mesa Springs, essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's McClure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, you know, you, you get a much, uh, much sort of clearer picture of that type of music, but it, but it was definitely something that, you know, my family listened to a bunch um, just because they were fans mm. of it. And, uh, and, you know, that sort of rubbed off on me as well, so... Yeah, it was funny. The, the one thing I remember about being um, from Virginia is, you know, I really loved, um, I love Virginia. I, it's a beautiful part of the country. And it's, you know, as a, um, I always used to get embarrassed at the, at the way the South was portrayed in popular culture. And I've had discussions with good friends of mine from South Carolina that felt the same way. And I, I just remember really not liking the notion of people thinking that everyone down south listened to country music and on top of that the Dukes of Hazard coming out when I was in like fourth grade. It does or not help. 
no. And it just made me so upset. Like, it, you know, my friends would, even my friends from down there, they'd be like, you know what? Look, did you see the Dukes of Hazard? I'm like, shut you know, the fuck up. This was the beginning of, <laughs> yes. this the, no, this was the beginning of me having, being an imperious dick about, <laughs> yeah. you know, having better taste than everybody else. So it was just like, no. Oh, I'm glad to know that we can, um, we can blame that on them Duke boys too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Damn them, boys. <laughs> but, um, but uh, anyway, that was my. I, I have to correct one. Them. Like I have to, I have to correct one thing you said earlier, which is that Virginia is the first Southern state. It's not. It's the second Southern state below Maryland. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only know I that because believe. I spent years trying to escape both of them as a child and uh, managed no, managed I, not to do it. So um, I know that to be true, and I don't believe it to be true. Well, yeah, it's been some time in Southern Maryland, man. It's it, it doesn't. It's a hell of a lot more Southern than Northern Virginia is. So. Um, All right. Well, that that said, you know, I think one of the ways it did bleed in, and, and uh, not not in a way that I'm I'm thrilled about, but um, the uh, you know, given my my hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia, produced the Dave Matthews Band, and, and Virginia is really be, you know sort of is sort of a center uh, for the jam band culture. I know that you know the the circuit down there as far as touring colleges um, was always you know sort of a, a slight variation on on the. AC, you know, the ACC conference, you know, bands would tour from sort of Georgia through the Carolinas up to Virginia, DC circle, go back. You know, it's a lot, it's pretty, uh, it's an area that's pretty dense with colleges and, you know, jam bands are really, that is, that's their target audience. That's who loves this stuff. And, and I can't, you know, you can't really talk about Virginia without talking about the biggest band that ever came out of Virginia, which is the Dave Matthews band out of Charlottesville, who are a love, terrific bunch of guys uh, <laughs> and have done a lot <laughs> have done a lot for the city of Charlottesville. It sounds like we're really <laughs> choking through this segment. Yeah, there's a reason for that. But get, sorry, uh, Wyndham, go yeah. on. No, no, no. That was that was the end of it. I, I um, you know, and Jeremy, you know, really grew up in the middle of it. I, I this is sort of past my, um, you know, I, I could, uh, it, I. I wasn't a big fan, so I could, you know, I could avoid it. Uh, I think Jer was, uh, well, Jer was really stuck in the middle of it. But you know, that said, I know that these are terrific people who, and people love the Dave Matthews Band. So, and I can't discount that. So, well, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they, they, there's a bunch of, you know, Jason Mraz, who's another, oh. you know, hip. Hit maker in the vein of Jack Johnson oh, no. from Mechanicsville, Keller Williams, who's a, a big jam band guy, um, and then you know uh, Bruce Hornsby, who's sort of the spiritual godfather of of jam bandism, and also was formerly the keyboardist for the Grateful Dead, on and off through the uh, late '80s, early '90s. Um, also a, uh, a Virginia native, so there is a healthy jam band. Uh, contingent down there. It would be awkward if I yeah. hung up on you in the middle of the podcast, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, so we'll flip it around and we'll say, you know, but that said, um, we'll take a break and we'll, we'll come back and talk a little bit about uh, the indie rock. I've a- uh, yeah, I've actually got a pretty funny story about Mraz that I've got to share too, so. Okay. All right, after the break. Come, we'll be back. Changes our thing. 
Welcome back to Brother, Brother, Brother. Tonight, we are having a Brother, Brother podcast. It's Christian and I talking about our home state of Virginia. Uh, and Christian, I'm sorry, I cut you off uh, right before we took the last break. You had a um, Jason Mraz story. I right? do. Um, in fact, this podcast is turning out to be proof positive of the fact that that guy is just going to follow me around for the rest of my life wherever <laughs> I go. Because uh, so, you know, as I, I think I've talked about a little bit before, um, I work out in Southeast Asia a bunch for uh, uh, doing sort of political risk and that kind of stuff and, and spent a lot of time in, in Myanmar. Um, and, uh, you know, over the last seven years or so, um, I've spent a fair amount of time trying to teach people, and, and I really feel like I'm doing the Lord's work here um, when uh, when I'm teaching people about punk rock. Um, this is, uh, of course, a relatively foreign concept, but, you know, I've got a few friends into this stuff. Um, and actually, they've uh, there's a cool couple of bands, one or two of which have played at South by Southwest in the last few years. Side Effect is, is one of them. Um, that's like an indie rock band from Yangon, of all places. But, um, but in any event... Uh, the all of the good work that um, I had spent years uh, doing, spreading the gospel of punk and indie rock, um, was undone in about ten seconds when MTV hosted um, an anti-human trafficking concert in Yangon, uh, and the headliner in that festival or uh, concert was Jason Fucking Mraz. Um, so the next time I went out to Yangon, having you know having spent as I said, a couple of years giving people uh, London calling and trying to explain, you know, it's it's such an important part of, like, the fabric of Western society. Um, and the next time I come back and everybody's fucking rocking out to Mraz. Um, so, like, it just, everything vanished in a second. Um, but, so, yeah, I, I have to, I, I guess he is from Virginia. So there's that. Well, we can make up with it by uh, name-checking a couple of our favorites from indie rock. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. I think, um, you know, before we get to talking about some of the things that are happening currently in one of, you know, the band that actually won our, uh, won the first, uh, was top band in our albums, the 2016 albums of the year. Um, I will say that Amy Mann, so much as, uh, she is a Boston, uh, icon and an LA, uh, resident, uh, was a, was an, attended the same elementary school I did, I believe in, in Richmond, Virginia, Bon Air Elementary. I know what. And then uh, Dave Grohl is from your neck of the woods. That's true. He uh, he actually grew up in the house three doors down from my elementary school, um, which incidentally, when I was in the bar at the Black Cat uh, last around Thanksgiving, um, and he walked in, and they, literally there was nobody else there, and he sat down next to me, and I was like, oh, hey, Dave Grohl. He's, uh, he's a part owner of the Black Cat in D.C., um, we were able to uh, briefly reflect on the fact that we were both home seeing our moms. So, yeah. And that in common. So anyway, um, and then I just wanted to, you know, give a quick shout out to Sparkle Horse, who was a band that I loved. Um, and Jeremy uh, was a big fan of as well. And, um, you know, another a band that met rather a sad, you know, sad fate um, when they're, uh, you know, it was a sort of a one-man act. But um, he... Uh, Left us too soon, shall we say. But um, if you have a chance to check out Sparkle Horses catalog, you should, and we'll play a little music by them. We'll put some on the on the Spotify playlist. That's right. And, and Cracker, too, right? 
You know, I've always been confused about Cracker because, and I, you know, I should, I should have come armed with with details, but I, I think they're based. Let's out just of make Richmond. them up instead. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 But I think that no, they they're based in, they're based out of Richmond, is right. what I understand. Um, I always because I was a Camper Van Beethoven fan, knew them as a Santa Cruz. Or like is Santa and Cruz near that's like Stockton or something. They're from like Central. Santa. Is it Central California? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's it's south of it's you know about an hour and a bit south of uh, San Francisco, but not you know not in a direct route. It's you know sort of south of the bay. Okay. And um, you, uh, but they were they were Santa, UC Santa Cruz band, which I, you know may you know have some you know Virginia roots. Not I'm not 100 percent sure, so I can't really speak to it. But I know that they they you know they're sort of billed as a Richmond band now. So. There you go. And then the one we don't have uh, any uh, to do too much deliberation about is uh, Car Seat Headrest, who was absolutely top album of 2016 and is a Leesburg yeah. native, much like our sister-in-law, Leanne. Yeah, he's uh, he's kind of all over the place, I guess, or all over Virginia, I should say. I mean, he's from, from Leesburg originally, which is sort of an exurb of, of D.C. these days. Um, but uh, but then we went went down to William & Mary, which is where he did a lot of his earlier recording. Um and uh, and I guess he's now landed um, in the North Pacific Northwest, but um, but certainly uh, certainly all of his all of his early albums came out of there. And he's also been a big champion of uh, of another band that we both I think really like, which is Gold Connections out of Charlottesville. Um, yeah, I'm betting big on them to yeah. to write the ship in Charlottesville. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that's a that's a safe bet. Um, and uh, you know, they I guess just just signed to. I'm not sure. I think there was just some. Well, we'll we can follow up on this next time. But um, this is what happens when we don't do our homework. Um, but I'm pretty sure they just got a. They they just have a deal to to release. Uh, he's he's releasing an album in May, I think. Um, so pretty excited about that. Um, but definitely a great sound. So lots of potential there, and has done some collaboration and that kind of stuff with with Car Seat Headrest um, and Will Toledo of, of Car Seat Headrest, I should say. What's um? You know, I think we're gonna oh. wrap up. Oh, and then Guar. We have to. Oh, I'm sorry. we have to. We I'm can't. Sorry. How could we possibly finish the? Um, yeah, at this point, it feels like we're just listing bands. But I. But we have to say Guar because it definitely produced one of the funnier jokes that I heard, um, which was that uh, Trump's cabinet should be forced to dress like Guar. Um, which <laughs> I just thought was like a you know funny off funny off the cuff remark. Yeah, after the election, like. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, Guar is like what a bunch of freaks, but. God, their shows are fun. Oh, they're great. <laughs> yeah, it's just awesome stuff. And they've never, you know, they're, they're again, they're sort of like uh, the Cramps or, or uh, you know, any any number of these sort of outlier bands where, you know, they're diva or something. It's like, Guar is Guar. Yeah. <laughs> There's just not two ways about it. There's not, you know, like, Guar is not part of a scene. No. Um, no, they're not. Or if it is, then, it's from a different planet. Then, yeah, and then Lamb of God, who is a, a very big metal band, oh, yeah. is also from Richmond. Big time. But, uh, well, I think we, you know we're going to wrap things up. But uh, what we need to do uh, first is we need to each add one song to the uh, million ten best songs of all time playlist. What are you thinking of adding tonight? So I definitely, I definitely want to pick a Fugazi song off thirteen songs, um, and I'm still a little bit torn between Waiting Room and Bad Mouth, which is probably, uh, probably my favorite song, just because of those that those like open strummed first couple of chords and that. So I, I think I'm gonna go with Fugazi's Bad Mouth tonight. 
Yeah, I, I, um, you know, I was torn too. There's a lot of great music that came out of Virginia, and um, you know, my my inclination is to put "Flowers on the Wall" by the Statler Brothers on there, but I'm going to skip that uh, temptation and go with "Work It" by Missy Elliott. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which so which I couldn't have less in common other than the fact that they're both from Virginia. So um, exactly, well, they're cousins. Yeah, um, and then you know I'm gonna we'll we'll wrap up the show like we wrap up every show with uh, what are you listening to? So I've been listening to uh, to this band the the Lemon Twigs um, who have an album out right now called Do Hollywood, um, and uh, this oh, yeah. is Brian and Michael Daddario um, who are actually the sons of a '70s. Uh, a singer-songwriter um, named Ronnie Daddario. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I these guys are, first of all, have, like, an extremely uh, referential style. So they're both still, I, I think they're both still teenagers. Maybe they're, like, 18 and 20, something like that. Um, but, you know, the, the visual is pretty fun. I just saw them a couple nights ago um, at a Bowery Ballroom. And, um, you know, they're definitely they have grown up around performance, so it is not new to them. Um, you know, I, I think that for right now, people might say, well, that is a little too referential. But, um, you know, in, in my opinion, I think these guys have serious, serious musical chops. Um, and I think they're going to develop, you know, their own brand of this that, that really sort of, uh, that really, you know, takes it in its own direction. So, I mean, for, for fans of, like, Foxygen um, and, you know, who like that sort of Beatlesy, Kinksy um, sound. Tatarangrini. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then definitely, definitely check these guys out. They're called the Lemon Twigs. Oh, cool. Well, I, I've actually, you know, I sort of, I'll cheat this a little bit and say that I, you know, I was doing some research for this podcast, but I was also doing some research for the Boston one that Jeremy and I uh, did together. Um, Christian being the the lone brother that has never uh, lived in Massachusetts, and I went back and, and listened to some of the uh, the sort of mid eighties. Uh, bands that were that didn't you know that made it that were big locally but weren't big um, nationally or didn't never quite make crack it nationally and that sent me back listening to uh, bands like the Liars who were great sort of a um, I would say the the prototype for the first Hot Hot Heat record uh, would be the good analogy or the Flesh Tones they were sort of Boston's Flesh Tones um, and uh, so I went back listening to the Liars the Neighborhoods. Um, uh, Robin Lane. Um, it was really fun to go back and sort of, you know, do a deep dive on mid eighties, and, and, and also, uh, you know, of course, Mission of Burma, who I will still Hell yeah. uh, stand by as one of the, you know, great bands of all time. That that you know, sort of, whatever, did, you know, could have, could very well have been a lot more popular, a lot uh, had a much broader audience had they uh, not had uh, medical issues force them out of of uh, perf- you know performing and recording in the early 80s they were a juggernaut uh, that was about ready to happen i mean they're critical darlings and um as well they should be a phenomenal band and super inventive for their time yeah so, actually you share that with uh, so usa nails who we interviewed recently um when when doing the defender year segment and they were sort of coming up with albums from from 1982 um, versus was one of the ones that they picked. So, um, so yeah, oh, that's yeah cool. exactly. That's that's wild. I'm t- I wouldn't have you know. I mean, but that's a that's the you know that's what technology has delivered us. You know, ba- bands from London who can love you know, post punk. Yeah, go back forty years and, and listen to uh, listen to Mission of Burma. Just to clarify, um, when you're talking about liars, you're not talking about the Angus Andrew. I am not. I'm talking about L Y R E S, oh. uh, Boston band from the '80s uh, that were. 
you know, they were great. They had a front man who simultaneously played keyboard one-handed and smashed a tambourine around. So not, and, and not and, a front um, man who dated Karen now. No, <laughs> no, um, not so far as I know. Um, but yeah, really great stuff. And, uh, you know, sort of filling in the cracks of, of, you know, what I remember, uh, what I recalled from being a teenager in the Boston area and what actually was on record. And it's fun to go back and listen to dump truck and O positive and chain link fence and the rest. So Very cool. anyway, if you're a Bostonian, check it out. So one last, uh, one last thing, Wyndham, can you, uh, tell us a little bit about the awesome, uh, awesome March madness bracket? Uh, well, we've sort of been teasing it out, but here's the here's the basic idea. Um, you know, all the all those sort of quintessential great bands that we think of as great bands, or many of the quintessential bands that we think of as great bands, are not American. And so uh, I asked, and I was asked originally by uh, my friend Peter Cipriani, what is the greatest American band? And it is a conversation starter. It's a great uh, party that question. Never ends. Yeah. <laughs> So what we decided to do to put uh, the question to rest is this year during March Madness, uh, starting with Selection Sunday on March 12th, we are going to select a field of 64 bands, uh, American rock and roll bands. And we, by the time March Madness wraps up and that crappy One Shining Moment song plays (laughs) on April 3rd, we will have a winner. Um, I'll tell you more about the way uh, we're going to structure it and, and, and the rest, but uh, look forward to a lot of very um, interactive dense. and uh, fierce <laughs> conversations. Con- yeah, fierce debates yeah. on our part. But I think the other thing is, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to set these brackets up with 64 bands. We're definitely going to make them available to everybody who's listening. Um, so we definitely want people to, to fill out their own brackets, uh, you know, and tell us why they think incorrectly uh ours are wrong um and uh we'll we'll be tweeting about this and throwing throwing it up on uh throwing it up on the website thebrotherpod.com um and uh and and definitely encourage everybody to to jump in and get involved look forward to your participation but uh, i'm looking at some uh i'm 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 looking forward to what i look forward to every year which is early round upsets by mid majors <laughs> Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So, anyway, we're pumped about this. Um, it's shaping up. Yeah, this is going to be very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I will catch so, up with you next anyway, week. Anyway, good night, everybody, and talk soon. Bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Brother, Brother, Brother Podcast. Many thanks to Simon Doom for our intro music, Hair of the God, and to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Tweet our mistakes and your recommendations, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, on behalf of Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you for listening.